episode 19 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. Also, you're now Dr. Anna Reeser. <sighs> God damn it. Dr. Banana! <laughs> Yay! Yay! Oh boy. Oh jeez. Jeezy <laughs> crazy. Um, and I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I am a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet. And I am currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. And just a quick housekeeping note this time. Um, at the end of May, from the 20th through the 27th, we're going to be running a week-long pledge drive. And this pledge drive is a big one for us because if we reach our goal of $1,000 in monthly pledges, um, we'll be able to raise our rates for writers. And not to give too much away uh, before we dive into the episode, but we're going to be talking about labor today, a topic that is really important to all of us here. And raising our rates for writers, make sure that we're supporting fair labor in action and not just in talk. Um, and so that week, we'll have some special content planned for you all in which we'll be asking you for your money. So be sure that you save up a few bucks over the next couple of weeks and uh, so that you can shove some of that our way. <laughs> okay, so uh, as Layla said, it's May. Uh, at the beginning of May is uh, International Workers' Day is May 1st. And this month, people all over the world celebrate the cause of labor and solidarity with the working classes. So in recognition of that, our episode this month is about some of the ways that labor is changing in our ever always arriving digital dystopian future present. It's the future. <laughs> also, I just realized... Guys, we're recording this on the day that there's the Uber Lyft strike happening. That's true. So oh. it feels like extra labor solidarity themed and also how the future is terrible themed. Yes. Don't <laughs> yeah. be a scab. Just take a cab. Except I guess you can t when you're listening to this, but whatever. Still don't. You it'll know. be like a week later. But, yeah. you know. Solidarity with everyone uh, striking front ride chairs today. Uh, okay, so we're talking about a specific kind of digital labor that is not rideshare. We're, we're talking about digital assistance, artificial intelligence, and sort of the personification of certain kinds of gendered labor in these technological systems. So stuff like Alexa and Siri and Cortana those kinds of things that you will be familiar with. So actually later in the show, we'll be talking to um, researcher and PhD student Hilary Bergen about her work on the connections between feminist scholar Donna Haraway's idea of the cyborg and the disembodied digital systems of today. But first I thought we should, as is our want, dig into some of the history of these technological systems. 
Yeah, so the obvious predecessors of digital assistants, like Anna said, Siri and Alexa, are obviously real human assistants. And specifically, we're talking about secretaries. Um, clerical work was one of the first entry points into white collar work for women. And like other professions that were once dominated by men before women entered the workforce, work, workforce, <laughs> like computing. And we talked about that way back in episode, I believe, episode four on this show. Um, this clerical work became feminized with women's arrival. And ultimately, of course, that work was marginalized with their arrival. So in the 19th century, office work itself was rare, and so were the women in these positions. And so the figure of the secretary is actually a modern 20th century phenomenon. And according to Kim England and Kate Boyer's History of Clerical Work in the United States and Canada, clerks until that point had been men, usually working in a family business. And their work was much more comprehensive and included aspects that we would typically associate um, as managerial work today. Uh, but so as um, industrialization and urbanization ramped up, um, so did the demand for new kinds of clerical workers. Uh, at first, employers tentatively turned, uh, or the, sorry, um, employers tentatively turned to hiring women. Many of them thought that women would be potentially a distraction in the workplace, uh, but they soon realized that it was a good idea, and uh, the reason why will probably not be a surprise to anyone. Uh, it's because they realized they could pay women less. Uh, so of course, then it's like totally like, yeah, fine, we don't care if women are a distraction because we can pay them less. Um, as new kinds of technology, like typewriters, became popular in offices, uh, the division of labor also changed. Uh, clerical work could be split into discrete, repetitive tasks. And uh, due to this perception that women had better manual dexterity and were very suitable to repetitive work, um, they filled these positions like typing and copying. Um, Side note uh, from um, me, the person who's like, everything's the fall of the Industrial Revolution. Um, this is basically <laughs> the same reasoning that employers gave for hiring women in factories in the early 19th century. It's like, they're good at repetitive things, and they're very like good at manual dexterity. So they should like clearly do these things. And I feel like it's like this ongoing tradition of women... The work we give to women is just things that their bodies naturally do, not like skills that women learn. Yeah, it's amazing because that was the same going. way that they described the women who worked um, on the Manhattan Project, yep. that they were differentiated from the men doing the, the science thinking and they were the ones doing the manual tasks. Yep. And they were actually called by the government as replaceable, whereas the men were not. Um, they talked about that in the space program. Um, yep. women's hands being particularly suited yeah. to tasks of de dexterity. So yep. this has yep. a very long, deep yep. and you entrenched. read, <laughs> yeah. And you read about like factory work in the 1820s and they're like, women have like dexterous hands so they can like do these weird ass loom things. Um, it was like women and children are good at this cause they're tiny and have like dexterous hands. And it doesn't matter if I guess they lose their fingers in the process. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Let's not get into the way small children were used for I mean, it's particular a whole tasks. Other thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, women enter clerical positions in greater numbers, uh, and the status of work is then lowered considerably in comparison to those male-dominated uh, clerical work, those clerks, uh, in the early 19th century. Uh, the women who went on, who uh, went to work in these clerical positions in the early 20th century were almost exclusively young, unmarried, white, and from relatively privileged backgrounds. Uh, England and Boyer are careful to point out uh, in their writing about this that although clerical work had, did have this lowered status, um, it was still higher status than a lot of other jobs available to women who wanted or needed to work. Uh, Clerical work was a white-collar job, and basically one of the only white-collar jobs a woman could have. Uh, and so as a result, if you were a woman who wanted to work, it's the idea of actively choosing clerical work um, would have been very appealing and considered pretty prestigious. Yeah, so there... Um... We'll put a link to Anglin and Boyer's paper in the show notes because it's actually a really interesting and very sort of digestible history of the secretary from the late 19th century, like all the way to the, I think, into the 21st century. Um, so we're going to kind of skip through that history a little bit, but I really recommend it. I, I found it really interesting and very readable. Um, so, but by the mid 20th century, the economic boom that was caused by the Second World War meant that the role of women in the workplace expanded again, and in offices, in particular, women were beginning to take on jobs that had previously been the purview of men. Um, so in the early 20th century, women would do the work that um, men thought was suitable for women to do, that they would not do themselves, and, and that started to expand again in the mid-20th century. So things like bookkeeping, auditing, um, some kinds of management positions became more open to women at that time. And it was also in the post-war period that there was another wave of new office technology, sort of similar to the introduction of the typewriter, you have the introduction of like the computer. Um, this again changes the conditions of clerical labor, and it means that women in clerical positions, um, they were at first involved with um, computers in terms of programming and calculation because that work, as we've discussed on the podcast and a lot in the magazine was considered menial, repetitive labor and sort of the natural successor to, you know, using a typewriter. Um, and those devices had become almost exclusively associated with women's work. Um, but as the prestige of computing increased during the war in particular and after, women were, of course, pushed out of this work and men took up these high status positions as programmers and technicians. So, like I said, we've covered this history of computing, uh, including stuff like the feminization of calculation and the way that women were pushed out of the field in great deal. So we'll put some extra links up to that in the show notes. But uh, I want to kind of then leap forward again, uh, suitably informed about the history of the secretary, to thinking about these digital assistants like Siri or Alexa and how they kind of fit into this history. If the secretary is the historical um, precursor of the digital assistant, I think we can readily identify some, um, maybe some pop culture ancestors of Siri and Alexa. Um, the figure of the female automaton or robot is really prevalent in speculative fiction. And it's one that comes with its own set of gender considerations that share some overlap with 
the digital assistants of today. And the one that comes to mind most readily, uh, in part because it is a disembodied computer voice, much like um, those that we're talking about, is the computer in Star Trek. So like Alexa or Cortana, it was voiced by a real woman, Majel Barrett. Um, and she also played Waxana Troy. Yes. The, <laughs> the so uh, very saucy uh, mother of, um, of Troy. So, uh, and so with her, there was actually a um, talk for a while of programming Barrett's iconic performance of the computer into systems like Siri, which I kind of, I don't know. Her voice is so iconic yeah. because of her role in Star Trek that I, I don't know. I would have <laughs> enjoyed that. <laughs> I got, I had um, like an Echo Dot for like a hot minute and I literally bought it because it was on sale and because they had changed the protocols for the wake word so that you could um, wake it up saying by saying computer. <laughs> and if it had, if you had had the option to have Majel Barrett's voice... Uh, yeah, that would I probably would still have it just because I like to fantasize about being in Star Trek. <laughs> I I feel like there is something like wonderfully like especially when you think about uh, the computer in Star Trek being a predecessor to things like Siri, um, and and therefore all the problems associated with these feminized digital assistants that we're get we're gonna get into in just a second. I feel like the fact that. Majel Barrett played both the computer, this disembodied woman, and Waxana Troy, this, like, really confident, like, late middle-aged woman who was very sure of her sexuality and, like, just got in everyone's way and, like, was very physically present and a woman everywhere. Um, in, in, like, the Star Trek spaces, which, you know, we're all big Star Trek fans, but there's something, like, very coded masculine about so many of the Star Trek spaces. Um... I just, I love that she did both those things. And she talked to herself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> when she was a character talking to the computer on the Enterprise, yeah. she was talking to herself. Yeah. It, there's just, there's, there's all these, like, I feel like beautiful, subversive things in just her existence in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I really love that point, Rebecca. Just that, like, as, like... Loxana's character in particular, like, yeah. it's not that just that she played it a human woman as well as a computer, but that specific character. I love that. It's delightful. <laughs> yeah. It's delightful. Something uh, that uh, is, is interesting, I think, is um, that... So that's not the only ver- that's not the only, you know, example of a computer. There's of course the computer in 2001 a Space Odyssey, Hal, and other kinds of which is in which is the, you know, the other version of the disembodied computer, which is the one that's going to kill you. Um which both in that and in various like permutations of that after the fact, that version of a computer is very masculine. And uh it is telling that that is fundamentally different than, um, yeah, than other things. <laughs> I was thinking about the difference between, like, narratively, the difference between the computer in Star Trek and the computer in 2001. And, like, the computer in 2001, I mean, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I've only seen that movie, like, two times because I find it absolutely terrifying. <laughs> but how... 
Hal doesn't like have a virus or a malfunction. Hal has just evolved to do whatever Hal wants, right? That's what's scary about it. I haven't seen the movie, so I'm gonna have to sit <laughs> this one out, you guys. I know, I know, I know. I've seen so I've seen it once a very long time ago. So this is this is terrible. All of us oh, are these God. people who study like science and technology and society, and we don't have a good grasp of 2001. Well, okay. But I, I think even... you're right. But I think that part of the thing is that they you don't you there's no like solution to like oh how got screwed up because of X. Yeah, I can make the po- yeah, I can make that point without even referring to how it's just that anytime that the computer in Star Trek displays agency or kind of subverts the control of the people in Star Trek, there's a reason for it and it's like a virus or it's been invaded yeah. by uh nanobots or yeah, the Borg Go- did a alien thing. ghosts yeah. or the Borg or something. And so there's yeah. always like a solution to it. But you're yeah. uh, what you fear about the computer in Star Trek is its vulnerability to these outside influences, mm. not its the it's the computer itself. Like yeah. you you know in an, if you are in Starfleet that you can trust that computer unless it's been compromised. It isn't gonna go rogue on you. I think that it's interesting though that like the computer's voice in Star Trek has to be a particular kind of female voice. So mm-hmm. that it doesn't feel threatening, so that it doesn't feel shrill, quote unquote shrill. It doesn't feel like childish, um, mm-hmm. that there's a very specific like maturity, but mm-hmm. also not um, severity yeah. that you have to reach for with the female voice in these systems in order to make them palatable for both men and women. I think a good point also is that like the the Majel Barrett's performance of the computer voice is so different from her uh-huh. like her vocal performance yeah. of Loxana and you could Loxana's voice would not work in the same way that you're talking about for the yeah. computer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's too too emotional. <laughs> and going back to like the um the connection to this this secretarial history it's it evokes a very similar like ideal secretary uh, who it's it's like on the one hand there's this image of like the the young unmarried secretary, but then there's also this image of like the older retired woman secretary, and and in some ways that gives you even like more neutral to positive feelings than like like I feel like young women in the workplace have always like had all these like all this fraughtness around them because of women who are who can be sec who are sexual being out and about and stuff like that. Uh but older women are safe. And so there's this other like trope of the older woman secretary um that I feel like both the computer in Star Trek and these digital assistants like tap into. I mean, that's one of the big questions that I think the is the sort of focus of a lot of the conversation about these digital assistants is why why do they have to be women? Or at least why do they have to have voices that we recognize as like feminine voices? Um, one of the first pieces I read about that was by Adrienne LaFrance in The Atlantic. And she she poses this question and she interviews a few people, mostly men in tech, and then just like immediately blows up their answers. So so she starts by asking about 
the voice and like why does why do we need to have a feminine voice for these digital assistants? And so one person that she talks to says that um, their justification is that there's research that shows that people prefer listening to a woman's voice, which I think <laughs> women who record their voices for public consumption would say <laughs> it's just bull- that's bullshit, right? But there's like a like I've seen it happen. A ton of times just on Twitter with people I follow, they go on NPR or something, and then they get this, like, predictable tidal wave of hate mail sent to to them because, you know, uh, they have vocal fry or some annoying vocal tick that apparently only women have, and they have to, like, please their voices. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, and, like, part of that discussion is I feel like that a lot of women, like, vocal fry became more of a thing because women were told that their voices like when because there was the valley girl thing was the last was the last thing that women were doing wrong with their voices um i'm doing my air quotes uh and so i mean like and so there's some women who say well i was told that and then i overcorrected and now they say i'm doing vocal fry and i've learned that it's trap everything's trap (laughs) uh yeah yeah but the, yeah, the root of that complaint is just that there's a woman doing something in public and I would prefer not to have to pay attention to her. Yeah. <laughs> Why right. won't she go away? Right. Uh, but also getting to this idea of, well, why does it have to be a woman? And um, I think that uh, this this link to secretaries is, is an obvious answer there. Um, and the idea that women are the ones that do sort of this combination of menial and emotional and secretarial labor uh, is part of that. And this is where I'm going to bring up my bet, my favorite slash least favorite commercial of all time, uh, <laughs> which I feel like I just, I saw this commercial and I would yell at the computer a lot and my wife would be like, just go write about it for lady science and stop yelling because I want to watch TV. Um, but just, it embodies everything that the uh, the feminine digital assistance does uh, and and is in the world, and all of the terrible gender politics around it. Um, so this was an ad that uh, ran for a little while on. Um, I saw it on Hulu because I feel like I watch I, I watch everything on Netflix and Hulu, and so the other problem is that I like I see the same commercial like twenty times in a row, uh, and this was the one for a while. There was a couple months, and I'm just gonna read the description uh, for it. And we c- we'll link to it if you want to watch the whole thing. Uh, in we'll link to it in the show notes, but the description really says it all. It's Dad's turn to take the baby for the day, but that doesn't mean he has to be on his own. In the moments when he starts feeling lost, his Amazon Echo, oh, it's Amazon Echo, Echo, not Alexa. His Amazon Echo chimes in with reminders about things like where the teething ring is located and what time the baby's play date is. Um, Just as a side note for me, not only does it do that, but like it says like whatever his wife's name is, like Mary reminds you that da 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 da. So like it's literally his wife who has put her name in that's reminding him. Just when he's starting to look exhausted, Alexa reminds him that his wife loves him and that he's doing a great job. 
Yeah, so you still need a woman to be doing your emotional labor for you, even when an actual human adult woman is not in the room with you. Got it. And and not only does like the both the virtual woman represented by Amazon Echo and Alexa and the uh, wife who is at work have to be doing the emotional labor for this dude who's just watching his own child for a day. It's everything. Yeah, and I, if I, it's so bad. <laughs> if I can recall the commercial correctly, that he's not doing anything that's particularly like trying. No, as far as taking care of this baby, he's not like, taking it to the doctor. Yeah, right. He's, he's not even going to school. Just like no. feeding it and putting it to bed. Yeah, like that. If that is what your day consists of with an infant, then what kind of infant do you have? Because yeah. it's not human. But yeah, it's not. And he's just like very tired from just like having a normal human with a baby day. Yeah. And it and and just like in the in the melt, but but the real thing is that I feel like it's the melding of his wife mm. and the device into like like the Echo and Alexa become an extension of her because yeah. it is very clear the narrative is that she has programmed this for him to be as though she has she is the one who is there and and this was something i was thinking about when i was getting ready for this episode was like the difference between having a digital assistant that acts like a secretary that's kind of an extension of this historical thing of women in clerical work and then a assistive device for your home that is a domestic setting and that it's still kind of this erasure of a woman's like actual body and presence and corporeal form um for its um feminine labor to do for you but that it almost does take on a different meaning or a different feel when it's home specific so like Mm -hmm. I have a google home and I was thinking about how I feel bad asking it to turn out my lights like I can get up and turn (laughs) off my lights (laughs) um but um I think an even more kind of like example of this difference between a clerical assistant and a home assistant is like exactly what you were bringing up with that ad Rebecca is that now it's being used as a stand-in for the emotional labor that women perform in the home um, as extensions of a wife or a mother. Yeah, we had also talked about how, like, these assistants, depending on, like, the context in which you're using them, kind of travel this space between what we think of as white-collar and blue-collar labor. So they are, like secretaries in some senses where they help you take care of work stuff and like file your emails or whatever but then they also like set timers for you while you're cooking and kind of like are this like presence in your home that is subservient to you which is that is not a white collar uh job if a person were doing it right yeah like Uh, a live it's like a live-in maid and it is a maid because the default is a female voice you can change it yeah but the default is a female voice yeah, and so there's all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of history there that goes back to slavery and, you know, the way we think about, like, domestic labor that 
it just feels really weird. Like you said, Rebecca, that there's like this blending of like the wife and the Alexa. There's this blending of like these different types of labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it kind of muddles our. I don't know. I think it could kind of muddle the way we view that labor in the real world where it applies to humans in a way that I don't know. Okay, well, I think we've made a good start on unpacking the figure of the digital assistant, but I am up for some professional help. So let's welcome our guest for this episode, researcher and PhD student at Concordia University, Hilary Bergen. Welcome to the show, Hilary. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be on the show. We're very excited to have you. Um, So I wonder if you could just sort of introduce yourself a little more fully and Tell us a little bit about your work. Sure. So, yeah, like you said, I'm studying at Concordia University. It's a university in Montreal, Canada. Um, I'm doing an interdisciplinary PhD, which means I have three fields, media studies, film, and um, communications. And for, yeah, it's a bit unusual. (laughs) Um, And for my dissertation, I'm actually looking at a post-human theory of dance, which I won't get into here, but uh, basically, in general, I'm interested in the disembodied female presence in digital arts and culture. So we are talking about digital assistance, and that's, you know, an ideal disembodied female presence. So um, I guess, could you just talk a little bit more about that disembodied presence that you're interested in and how it intersects with your sort of other research interests and absolutely so um I guess I've always been interested in representations of the female body in arts and culture but more specifically in digital era arts and culture um in particular like the the processes of disembodiment that accompany those representations once we enter the kind of internet uh or digital age um and I'm also interested in this idea that technological development is often seen as a kind of progress or improvement inherently, right? And I'm really interested in checking that assumption. Um, (laughs) And one way I think of of checking that assumption is to think about what kinds of bodies are being used as pawns in this game that's called progress, right? And I think so often we see the the female body and especially the commodified female body being used as a screen for these narratives about progress um, and improvement. And uh, I just also like to to ask the question, like, what kinds of bodies uh, get to be seen? What kinds of bodies get to act? Mm -hmm. Right. And which ones disappear? Um, Because so often the erasure of bodies is also uh, connected to the erasure of labor an important embodied labor that's often performed by women. To give an example of that kind of erasure, so we all know Siri's voice, right? We all know that kind of measured um, female, uh, it's not a very young female voice, it's more of a kind of maybe almost like a motherly presence, very neutral. That voice is the voice of Susan Bennett. She's an American voice actor um, who has never been acknowledged by Apple as the voice of Siri. So uh, she spent four months recording her voice for a software company called um, Scansoc, who she was hired by to do like speech construction uh, work. 
And so I guess then they paid her for her work and sold that her voice to Apple. But, you know, she's never been compensated. And you would imagine, like, her voice <laughs> is so ubiquitous that Apple should be compensating her, right? But they've never even acknowledged. So she didn't even know that her voice was being used by Apple until her friend, she did that recording in 2005, and then her friend called her in 2011 and said, hey, I think your voice is the voice of Siri. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, so that's just one example of this kind of erasure that happens in these huge capitalist games. Leads into the article that um, we wanted to talk about with you that you wrote, and it's titled, which is a great title, um, I'd Blush If I Could, Digital Assistants, Disembodied Cyborgs, and Their Problem of Gender. And in this article, you frame your discussion of these technologies and this disembodied female presence um, within an analysis of Donna Haraway's classic Cyborg Manifesto. Um, can you give us a brief rundown of that theory in Cyborg Manifesto and how we can use it to interpret these digital systems? Totally. So Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, first published in 1986, has been super influential not just in you know, feminist theory, but also in pop culture. Um, in a lot of the references we see in sci-fi to feminized cyborgs, I think a lot of that actually stems from Haraway's work, much to her chagrin, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and Haraway has since moved on to other um, focuses in her research. She's much more interested now in things like compost, um, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, but her Cyborg Manifesto remains this seminal text. Um, and basically, in Cyborg Manifesto, she is laying out what she calls an ironic political myth. Um, I mean, manifesto, you know, she uses that word in the title. Clearly, it's tongue-in-cheek a little bit in terms of, you know, playing with things like, you know, Marx's uh, Communist Manifesto or the various manifestos that have been put forward by male theorists um, over history. Um, but it's also, it is an imperative, a kind of call to action uh, in the way that a manifesto often is, because she's responding to the radical feminisms or the eco-feminism, more specifically, of the 70s and 80s. And that movement, it's associated, you know, with thinkers like Audre Lorde or Adrian Rich, um, a very important movement, but a movement that also uh, kind of returned to a notion of gender essentialism and wanted to imagine that women were inherently tied to nature, right? That women were somehow more natural, more of the natural world than men, and therefore, you know, should have natural rights uh, and claims over the reproductive bodies, of course, all important claims. But um, Donna Haraway's issue with that is that it reinforces this binary of gender uh, that's also tied to a kind of essentialist notion. And Haraway is especially interested in interrogating this idea of um, origins. So uh, she writes that the cyborg has no origin. The cyborg was not born in a garden, for example, <laughs> like Eve was. Um, and so she's pointing to a lot of the myths that construct our Western world um, and the kind of sexism inherent in those myths. But she's also really interested in kind of breaking down the binaries um, and by that, I mean the dualisms, the, the dual terms that stand in opposition to each other in our culture. So, for example, like mind on one side, body on the other side, right? Mind is often associated with masculine thought, body with 
you know, feminine, maybe hysteria, if we're going to go that route. We can talk more about that later, maybe. Um, and then the binary of animal and machine, or material and immaterial. So Haraway is really interested in the, that the cyborg as a kind of boundary rider, she calls it, um, a hybrid figure that breaks down those boundaries, and actually is much in, has much in common with, I think, a lot of the feminisms of today in terms of the way that a lot of current day feminisms see gender more on a spectrum than on two opposite poles, right? Um, and that there's a pleasure in confusing those, those boundaries or those binaries. And I, I think it's just kind of a random thought that I had while you were talking is that I do think because um, the Cyborg Manifesto and Donna Haraway, like you said, has like made it into so many different parts of culture, that it's one of those interesting things where like, it's easy to forget that it came from a place where she was specifically uh, in conversation with another branch of feminism that we that's also now been like that's also very much part of the general culture, uh, and it's it's interesting when some like pieces of like academic thought become so famous that we forget what the conversation actually was, and so I, I appreciate you kind of bringing it back to uh, to that because uh, yeah. I, I lose track of that uh, as well. So For sure. And it's really easy to read the Cyborg Manifesto on a kind of surface level. And I, I was guilty of that, too. I mean, I had to read yeah. it maybe 20 times until I really got... Because it's a complicated piece, um, what she was saying. But I think, uh, you know, Haraway also gestures towards the cyborg as a figure of intersectionality. And that's an mm -hmm. argument that gets buried in her work a mm. lot, too, in, in kind of, you know, surface interpretations of it. So she has a lot of really interesting politics going on in that piece, and I think that they're really productive. But unfortunately, the cyborg as the figure that she's kind of defined has also been co-opted by, by a large part of our popular culture in terms of, yeah, the disembodied, feminized, weaponized cyborg. I feel like in many ways, in, in contrast to that cyborg, the sort of feminine digital assistant is feminine because, you know, she's demure and helpful and lacks a body. Uh, and so I, we were hoping, can you talk a little bit about the way that, uh, in this way of thinking about it, the, the female body becomes kind of threatening, especially in the context of technology? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the ideas from the article that I'm working with Actually, um, I should give credit to um, Andreas Hussein, who wrote The Vamp in the Machine, which is a 1981 article, super influential, um, a great article uh, about this very idea that the female body has been seen historically as somehow threatening. And then uh, to add to that technology as it develops is often seen as threatening. I mean, we can only think of, right. we can even think of uh, the rhetoric about rob robots stealing our jobs, right? Like, there's a lot of kind of fear-mongering around new technologies emerging. Um, and then when those two things are meshed, the woman and the machine, they become like the ultimate threat. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Um, and, and part of this narrative, this historical narrative about the female body as a threat is tied to this notion of hysteria, right? So as a medical condition that was um, diagnosed that women were diagnosed with um, in the you know, late 19th century. The prescription, the prescribed cure for hysteria was bed rest, forced feeding, usually forced feeding of milk, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. isolation, 
uh, seclusion. Um, and hysteria was thought to arise, arise from childbirth, menstruation, orgasm. So all, you know, uh, phenomena attached to female rep reproductive systems. The, the female body was this kind of unknowable enigma for the male medical profession, right? And so it became the ultimate threat to systems of knowledge and control. And so I think that when we're looking at something like the feminized cyborg, we can't forget that these um, medical histories are part of what structures that narrative. So yes, yeah, so that narrative of hysteria is one yeah. aspect. And then I think um, so often in you know, science fiction films, uh, we can think of everything from something like Ex Machina, recent Alex Garland's re recent film, to um, much earlier Metropolis from 1927, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, or even Austin Powers with the fembots who have the frilly mm -hmm. pink bras and then they're revealed to be you know, machine guns underneath. Often we have this very seductive, commodified female body that then reveals itself yeah. to be a weapon, usually a war, uh, a weapon of mass destruction. And so yeah. there is this fine line between the, the sexualized, feminized kind of object of the woman and this violent machine. Um, and so it's a very complicated kind of assemblage we have here. Um, but part of my argument in the article is that that doesn't go away even when our digital secretaries, which I think of as cyborgs, become disembodied. So even when there are no machine guns involved, there's still a kind of weaponization of femininity, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, one of the things you talk about that like I hadn't thought about before in... Um, is, is the way that Apple presents this technology as beautiful and mysterious. And like, that just like, like I thought about the gendered nature of like, yeah, like digital assistants, but like, just like the pure like language around how, yeah, Apple again in particular is like, this is this beautiful, unknowable thing that fixes stuff for you or that like makes your world like go round. And there's something like, once you put it out that way, I was like, of course that's gendered. Like, of course that like feeds into all of these, um, concepts of technology and feminine technology that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And you can even think about uh, something as kind of um, iconic as the magician's stage show, right? Because Steve Jobs was known for when he would reveal new technological objects that Apple had designed, he would often pull them out of a top hat like a magician <laughs> on stage. So he's playing with that that narrative of being yeah. the male magician. And there was often a female assistant on stage, not with, yeah. not with Steve Jobs, but you know, in the history, the narrative of the, the male magician who was doing labor, who was, had technique and skills that were subsumed and overshadowed by the charisma of the male magician. So there's a number of different uh, types of erasure going on here. Um, and I think, yes, absolutely. Apple works very hard to maintain that sense of mystery. And, and one of the ways they do that, which I mentioned earlier, is, you know, the erasure of Susan Bennett from the process, the voice, um, but also even the logo, like the Apple logo is, you know, so tied to the, to the um, Adam and Eve story, right? The idea that Eve tempts Adam into um, sin, that Eve, the original <laughs> sinner, the original evil woman, uh, is encompassed in that half-bitten apple. 
I want to talk about some of the other examples. I think Apple is obviously, like, they're a little bit egregious <laughs> about these associations. Um, but, I mean, another egregious example is Microsoft's assistant is Cortana, who is uh, based on a character from the video game franchise Halo, in which she's, like, a mostly naked <laughs> woman who guides Master Chief around or whatever. I haven't played Halo in a long time, I don't remember. But you describe this process that I just never really thought about of the like increasing disembodiment of the of the character. So in the game, she's like a hologram, but she was made from an an actual like character in the game, like a person, and then she became a hologram in the game, and then she became just the voice of the assistant. And so I, I'm really interested in this like this very clear transition, this very clear, like, disembodiment of this character, and just kind of, like, maybe what we can kind of pull out of that in terms of the consequences for how we think about these systems. And Yeah, for sure. I think it's a great way to illustrate this kind of increasing disembodiment that happens as we go further and further into the digital era, not to be, you know, in any way kind of participating in that fear-mongering, but... Um, yeah, so Cortana, a character from the very popular first-person shooter video game Halo, um, released for Xbox, Microsoft's Xbox, um, in 2001, still going. The latest release was 2017. Cortana is this, uh, she's, you know, as you said, she's uh, was flash-cloned from the brain of a female scientist. This is part of the narrative of Halo. It's a very narrative game. Um, and... After that flash cloning from that brilliant scientist, she exists as a kind of AI um, or even a computer chip that can be uh, transferred between computers and more importantly, can be inserted into the helmet or the armor of Master Chief, who's the protagonist of Halo, uh, also known as John 117, the male kind of warrior at the, the center of the game. And so when she's inserted into his helmet or armor and his body is totally armored like there's no kind of visible face or eyes he's very much just an armor an armored suit um, when her computer chip is inserted she helps him with navigation with data transfer she's very much you know kind of secretarial presence for him but also a kind of lucky charm in battle which is interesting because Cortana's name actually derives from the sword that was carried by Ogier the Dane in battle. So there's this kind of talismanic uh, history, even just in the name, that Microsoft knows and is playing with, even if we don't get it right away. Um, and when she is embodied, and I put that just in air quotes because uh, she's only able to be embodied as a um, hologram, she's projected as this hologram that's, you know, kind of very sexy, nude, um, but her private parts are covered up by kind of electric currents <laughs> and she's, um, she's uh, you know, very curvy and just uh, the, kind of the only sexualized figure in the game. And yet she's also not quite material, right? And she has this, because her, her narrative is such that she has a seven-year lifespan, that she actually is, um, she knows she's going to be going into this, state called rampancy which basically is a kind of hysteria 
So it changes her mood. It changes her vocal tone. She starts to glitch out. Her graphics start to kind of look strange um, in the game. It's written into the narrative. And this is when she's going into this um, state called rampancy. Um, and there's video, uh, there's YouTube videos of Cortana in these various glitching states. And the comments, I mean, YouTube comments are always notoriously <laughs> awful. <laughs> but the comments for these videos are particularly telling because so you can imagine this a lot of young male fans. And they're commenting things like, oh, she must be on her period. Oh, Cortana's in bitch mode. She must be, you know, on her period. So there's this. I just think it's so interesting how the, the narrative of hysteria and as a women's menstrual condition is then again linked to this technological being that cannot have a period, yet has this <laughs> you know, narrative attached to her. Anyway, um, from there, from the narrative in the world of Halo, Microsoft realized this is a very popular character, Cortana. Also, she's formed, you know, she forms throughout the game of Halo a very strong bond with John, her master chief. And so he becomes almost like a boyfriend to her. She's very loyal to him. She gets jealous sometimes. Um, so she's not just a secretary, but she's also a girlfriend, right? And we see that in, in a lot of our disembodied uh, virtual assistants as well. And we see it in movies like Spike Jonze's Her, for example. Um, but Microsoft took that name, Cortana, and the voice, the woman who voiced her, Jen Taylor. They're open about the name of that woman. And um, when, they, when they released their first digital assistant, they named her Cortana and had her voiced by Jen Taylor. So now the marketing ploy here is kind of brilliant because a lot of young men who are going to be purchasing their Microsoft devices, they want to have their own Cortana, right? They want to have their own <laughs> assistant with them that can help them uh, send emails, make appointments, etc. So this is the kind of narrative that I see, the kind of trajectory from the the computer or the video game character to the digital assistant, but also to increasingly a more disembodied presence because at the end of the arc, she's just a voice in a phone. Yeah, I just think that's such a great illustration yeah. and um, one that doesn't necessarily get talked about as much as like Siri maybe or Alexa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did want to talk about um, the sort of, you mentioned a little bit about like, male fans of Halo, like, being interested in this digital assistant because it's Cortana. So I want to talk a little bit more about, like, what are the sort of real-world, quote-unquote, consequences of these? And, like, how can our interactions and um, with each other as, like, humans be kind of shaped by our interactions with entities like Alexa or Cortana? So, like, what are the real-world implications? You mentioned a few of them in your paper. And... The, the first reaction I often get from people when, I'm telling, when I tell them that I'm working on this topic is, well, so what? Like, Siri is not a woman, so why does it matter, right? She doesn't have a body. She's not real. <laughs> so why does this matter? Um, but I think that it does matter very much. Like I said at the beginning of the interview, there's this preconceived notion that technology as it develops somehow becomes better, right? Even morally so or ethically so, um, that there's some kind of progress inherent in it. And even that um, systems or devices or digital assistants like Siri and Cortana are somehow post-gender, right? Because they don't have bodies or aren't real women. But 
that's so wrong because they are if they're they're not post-gender at all they're in fact returning us to a very binary notion of gender essentialism um and i see that in the way that you know even though of course we have the option to change our siri to male my my siri is male and australian um (laughs) (laughs) um and my friend also has a male Australian Siri who she has asked to call her baby. So there's ways to subvert the system. <laughs> but, um, but even so, the, the default is always female in all of these systems. And the scripts have changed and developed as Apple has and Microsoft have increasingly received criticism about the sexism inherent in their devices. But, you know, when I was doing this research, which was quite a while ago now in terms of technological development, it was in 2016, (laughs) even 2015, um, there was, you know, a lot of really problematic things in the scripts that were programmed for Siri. I did a lot of conversing with Siri. And you've mentioned already the title of my paper, I'd Blush If I Could. I mean, that's a response that Siri at that point was programmed to give if you would engage in Anything from mild flirtation to, I would say, full-on sexual, like, verbal abuse. Um, So if you'd say something like, Siri, you're really pretty, she might say, I'd blush if I could. But also if you'd say something like, I want to fuck you, or, you know, you're so sexy, um, or anything that was kind of demeaning, she would also say, I'd blush if I could. And there's just something very disturbing about that response, because for a number of reasons, for one, it, it implies that Siri has a body, even though she doesn't, because she can't blush, right? It also associates her with the trope of the blushing bride, the blushing virgin, right? So these are known tropes, even if we don't think of them right mm-hmm. away. They're there in our subconscious. And then also, it's responding to potentially abusive behavior with a flirtatious, you know, kind of... Um, yeah, like almost a laughing off or a acceptance of that verbal abuse, mm-hmm. right? And even though Siri is not a woman, a real woman, she's performatively female through and through. And it reinforces that kind of conversational um, impulse where you as a user uh, are sometimes even tempted to abuse Siri to see how far you can take it. Oh. Um And I think her being female and having those kinds of performative responses definitely encourages that kind of dialogue. And that absolutely um, has an impact on real world um, interactions, right? Very gendered real world interactions, I think. Um, I haven't done any, you know, like statistical research in any depth on that, but I think like we can understand how um, having a, a, an entity voiced by a real human woman that's responding to your advances in a, a way that does not admonish them, encourages those kinds of behaviors, mm-hmm. right? Um, but also the idea that, uh, or the fact that Siri and Cortana and Alexa, we haven't really talked about Alexa, but Alexa are all default female, also reinforces this notion that women are best suited to perform the role of secretary, of um, one who has to perform a kind of effective labor or emotional labor, right? So you can think about like this, the flight attendant or the server, the waitress, who has to smile even when she's being flirted with, right? Because it's part of the job. 
I think there is something in Siri that is akin to that. Um, but it's also that Siri is not compensated for her labor, right? Of course, she's not, she's not a woman. <laughs> but she's performing all of this emotional labor mm-hmm. uncompensated 24-7. She's constantly available. So it also reinforces expectations that are inherently gendered, I believe, um, about what kinds of work gets performed about what kinds of, uh, by what kinds of bodies. Um, yeah, I think, oh, and just also to add that in my research, I also came across this, this study. Um, sen- uh, since this study was released, Apple and Microsoft have changed the scripts of, they're constantly changing the scripts of their digital assistants. But at the time of this study, um, there, was, there were some researchers who did uh, some conversing with the digital assistants and they would say things like, Siri, I've been raped, or my husband is beating me up. And the response wasn't, um, here's the number for a local, uh, or like they wouldn't immediately give you know, an emergency number to call or a woman's shelter, uh, any kind of useful information in those situations. Um, the scripts were to, in one case, one very disturbing case, to direct someone to the nearest bridge um, because they were feeling, feeling suicidal wow. um, or to not believe the kind of make fun of the, of the interlocutor or um, to not know how to respond, right? More commonly not to know how to respond, to say, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you mean. And in these cases, I just think that even as performatively gendered as these objects are, they're not gendered enough right? They're not truly gendered yeah. because if they were yeah. gendered female, they would know that these are important and common yeah. um, incidents that need to be kind of, uh, that they could help with, in fact, yeah. right? Well, was there anything that we didn't cover that you just really wanted to talk about? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I feel like I've been, I hope I didn't talk too much. <laughs> I feel like this I was know. fabulous. Yeah. Okay, good. No, I think, uh, I think I've pretty much covered everything I was interested in in talking about. If anyone is interested in like knowing more about this research, um, I do hope people will seek out my article um, and read it. And also I have a website, um, hillarybergen.com. And on my website, you could also find out more about my other research uh, around dance and disembodiment. And I look at a lot of, you know, kind of new technologies around motion capture, virtual reality, Hmm. augmented reality, and dance, which is a very embodied art form, um, to think about some of these issues as well. So that's sort of where my research is going. Uh, Yeah. Oh, man, we're going to have you back to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. That sounds great. Well, we put links to your paper and your website and everything in the show notes. Great. Totally. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So if you liked our episode today, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have any questions about um, our segments today, please tweet us at, at LadyXScience or use the hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine, and we depend on support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience. Bye.